So, eight minutes past nine, and as I promised, we've got various experts and commentators based in South Korea, Singapore, the US, and beyond for analysis of this unprecedented meeting today. Um, but uh, one of those experts is sitting alongside me right now here in the studio, Professor Patricia Gedi, Sungyunkwan University School of Law, specializing in human rights, refugee law, and North Korea. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Alex, for having me. Well, we can talk a lot more about your expertise, but first, let's get a, a sense of your general feelings on this summit. As, like me, you're sitting here, you can see we've got a live feed of the, of the, of the television coverage that many stations around the world will have access to, but right now is just a raw feed and we can see the summit venue on, on Sentosa Island. Not much going on there, but on our other screens, we can see a convoy carrying North Korean leader Kim Jong-un as well as a separate convoy with U.S. flags. Presumably, President Trump is in there somewhere. Is that building your excitement to actually just see that? It is. It's also surreal at the same time. It it feels like we're in a bit of an international dream, in a sense, because this has been in the makings for a while, but at the same time not sure whether it would happen or not until the day of. So this is something that... Uh, I think many people are looking forward to today uh, for many many different reasons, not just uh, denuclearization, but the human rights issue as well. The latter we, we can come on to, but this meeting, just to kind of pinch ourselves for a moment, before President Trump actually took office, he, he spoke of having a hamburger with... North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. I, I don't know whether there will be a, han, a hamburger or anything else like that on the menu today, but uh, it is basically that, what he suggested, having a chat with Kim Jong-un. But it, it seemed like a pie-in-the-sky comment at the time. It did, but when we see how Trump lives his life and how his words become his reality sooner or later, the presidency, for example then this may not have been that far off the mark, a remark to make in the first place. Well, does that mean we can also trust him with today's meeting, that he will bring about major changes in North Korea's attitude towards nuclear weapons and perhaps everything else? We'll see. I don't want to speculate just yet on, on that. But I think there's an experienced team that he's brought with him from the U.S. administration, and including Ambassador Song Kim. So this is, uh, I think this, there is hope to be said for the expertise that's here today in Singapore and that that's been going on behind the scenes that we may not know the full details of yet. Sensible analysis at the moment um but of course we are in that we are in that zone where we where we have to speculate i'm i'm keeping an eye on president trump's twitter feed he's just tweeted again seven minutes ago maybe from this convoy that we're witnessing uh just one big supreme court decision on voting great news so he's he's still focused on domestic affairs even at this yes, point yes yes that's right and there are other developments right now in the U.S. too that are cause for concern, such as uh, Jeff Sess- Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, deciding that uh, some asylum seekers won't have the same basis that they had had in the past 
um, especially those fleeing from domestic violence. So there are a lot of issues back at home that are cause, cause for alarm right now as we speak. As I said, we'll get on to some of the other implications and some of your expertise on human rights um, in due course. But let's uh, welcome our first phone guest of this hour as we continue our analysis with Ken Gores, director of the International Affairs Group at CNA, author of North Korean House of Cards, Leadership Dynamics under Kim Jong-un. Thank you very much for joining us. Nice to be with you. So with your expertise in, in the leadership of North Korea, the power structure of the regime, how do you think Kim Jong-un will be feeling right now in his own convoy? We're getting a little window into President Trump with his tweet on domestic affairs. Do you think Kim Jong-un might be considerably more nervous? Well, I think, it, you know, he has to be nervous. I mean, this is on uh, his a major foray onto the world stage. Uh, it is something that, uh, that he and his family has been, his father and grandfather have been trying to achieve for, for nearly 70 years. Uh, it's a great moment uh, for him. Uh, he doesn't want to mess it up. Uh, obviously, I, I think that he has probably done his homework. Uh, but still having to go into this uh, into this summit, there's a lot riding on it for him, and so I would expect that he probably is nervous. It has almost the the atmosphere of building up to a a boxing match or something. It's just unbelievable. We're talking about the two who will be stepping into the ring here, but I, but perhaps that will be diffused straight away. That feeling with with the first embrace of some kind, and and Kim Jong Un has shown repeatedly with Mike Pompeo, with Xi Jinping, with Moon Jae In, with with the various handshakes and embraces of the last few weeks, that, that he can put on that affable smile. And, and, I, and I, don't you expect to see the same from him today? I, I think that, it, you know, the first few seconds uh, in the meeting between these two individuals, I think will be, will be quite important uh, for kind of setting the stage. Uh, and I think that Kim Jong-un, you're absolutely right. He has shown his way. His ability to be affable, to be engaging, uh, to be able to really kind of maneuver on his feet uh, in a one-on-one situation with another leader. Uh, North Korea has already had uh, an experience uh, with Trump over the last few weeks uh, when Trump pulled out of the summit, and North Korea had to pivot quickly to get uh you know, to kind of soothe the tensions and, and get the uh, get the summit back on track. Uh, I think that a lot of that probably had to, came from Kim himself, uh, and so I think that Kim will be probably uh, making a, a, a very strong attempt to engage uh, President Trump and establish some sort of a relationship with him. When we look at the so-called sunshine policy era of um North Korean dialogue under Kim Jong-il. Uh, how different was the North Korean leader then compared with his son, Kim Jong-un, who, who we were almost sort of joking around in a previous interview saying he's becoming like a jet setter, far from being the rocket man that President Trump described him as. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we have to understand that, you know, that, that Kim Jong-il had had several years of, of leadership under his belt when he had the, uh, uh, the summits uh, in, the, in the 2000s uh, with uh, both the South Korean and Japanese uh, leaders. 
Uh, he was someone who I think was uh, very comfortable in terms of his legitimacy within the regime. Uh, Kim Jong-un runs the regime very different than his father did uh, because of his lack of inherent legitimacy, uh, you know, taking over at such a young age. Uh, he really has to show uh, his legitimacy through policy success, which then gets us back to the, the, the issue of a lot riding on this summit uh, for North Korea. Kim has to show his ability to lead, and, uh, and for him there is a, obviously a lot riding on uh, what's going to happen over the next hour. How much will this meeting do for him at home, do you think, that when, when, when KCNA and other domestic media in North Korea just broadcast even just the images of him standing alongside Donald Trump? What will that do for him? Well, I mean, we're already getting indications, uh, you know, through, uh, through various accounts coming out of North Korea of a certain excitement and energy inside of North Korea uh, about the prospects for change. And to be able to see their leader uh, standing alongside the most powerful man in the world, uh, in President uh, Donald Trump, uh, I think uh, it will mean a lot uh, for Kim and uh, and his legitimacy within the regime, uh, and and basically within the wider elite, uh, he will be seen as somebody who has done something quite rem- uh, miraculous. Thank you, Ken Gores. Great to have you with us on the line today. Sure thing. Ken Gores, author of North Korean House of Cards, Leadership Dynamics under Kim Jong-un and also director of the International Affairs Group at K- at CNA. We still have, and we are very pleased to have uh, for the next, what, 40-odd minutes, um, Professor Patricia Getty of Sunken Guan University School of Law. Uh, is there a danger that when we talk about Kim Jong-un and we speak of him in words like jet setter and, and this intriguing person that we ignore the darker side of Pyongyang? Is that what concerns you as a human rights expert? There's definitely that dimension of uh, the risk of normal, not just normalizing him, but almost elevating his stature right now. Because as we've seen, even last night with his entry to uh, Singapore and his night on the town, uh, where where you have all these cameras on him, um, and he looks like a celebrity honestly. So there are concerns very much so among the defector community that uh, this is this is beyond normalizing North the North Korean leader but celebrating him. But at the same time, maybe this is a necessary turning point that we mm. need to have to be able to engage on some level, to have some some serious breakthrough where we can actually start initiating dialogue on human rights. Yeah, indeed. I mean, this is the thing. If people really care about human rights, you've got to find that breakthrough somewhere. Because where we've been for the last few years, principled, waiting for North Korea to turn around, well, that's not worked either. Um, let's bring in our next guest on the line. And, and feel free to join us in this conversation anytime, uh, Pat- uh, Professor Getty. Patricia Patricia's Getty. fine. <laughs> I'm getting confused between pr- Professor and your first name there. But uh, please do join us at any moment because, uh, of course, we really appreciate you being in the studio. But we've also got a lineup of 
amazing guests from around the world, including now Professor Kazuto Suzuki from the Graduate School of Law at Hokkaido University. Hokkaido, not so long ago, was in the news for having North Korean missiles flying overhead. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. So, I mean, for you personally and for many Japanese people, there's a lot riding on this summit, isn't there? And, and you're relying on President Trump to represent Japanese interests, aren't you? Yes, indeed. Um, there are, we are sidelined in, uh, well, throughout, but uh, we are not um, sort of a party of the uh, um, secession. Uh, well, we are not party of any of these talks between the North and South or the United States and North Korea. So we have some agendas, but uh, the only channels that we can use is a Trump, uh, President Trump. But there has been in the past some dialogue between Japan and North Korea. Uh, in 2002, for example, Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi actually making that historic visit to the North to meet with Kim Jong-il. That was the first ever Japan-North Korea summit. And it's yes. hoped that maybe on the back of this meeting today that we could see again Tokyo and Pyongyang come together. Are you at least hopeful of that? Well, I think this is, uh, we had a, a serious break in between the uh, 2002 process and today's process. Uh, we had uh, something called the Stockholm Declaration, which is in between these two. And I think uh, uh, the whole um, uh, mood of the reconciliation during the early period of 2000 is now diminished. Um, I think the Prime Minister Abe was the center of this uh, process of uh, of breaking from uh, North Korean talks. So I think um, uh, Prime Minister Abe is in no position to ready to talk to North Korea at this moment. So I think that the, the mood is gone. But uh, um, we are not even what well, we refer to the Pyongyang uh, Declaration, but that is just uh, in, in a sort of a uh, in the legal context. Do you think, though, there's a danger of Prime Minister Abe being not just left out, but left in the past? He was part of the former policy under Barack Obama and Pakenhe of strategic patience. Uh, and, and, and is still, again, holding on to his principles and standing by, it looks like, uh, still sticking by the call for, for example, North Korea to recognize uh, its abductions of Japanese citizens in the past. But d does Prime Minister Abe also need to boldly come forward now in the way that President Trump has and, and Moon Jae-in has, uh, President of South Korea and Chinese leader Xi Jinping? Well, I think in the recent development between North and South and the United States and, and North Korea, um, Prime Minister Abe is now slightly changing his attitude towards North. And he is, um, in several occasions, he um, he described or he he demonstrated that um, he, he may talk to uh, North Korean leaders. But um, I think in general, Prime Minister Abe has been known as the, the hardliner against North Korea. And I think this is his position. He has earned his reputation through the talks with, between uh, Kim Jong-il and, uh, and uh, Koizumi. And uh, he has been 
supported by the hardliners in Japan. So I think his position is very, very tight, and uh, it's really difficult to change his position towards more uh, blunt, uh, uh, open open for the talks with uh, North Korea. Well, we now know that uh, Kim Jong-un has officially left the St. Regis Hotel, where he's been staying in Singapore. Not actually seen entering a car, but uh, it is believed he is still being driven to meet President Trump on Sentosa Island. Uh, We're about 35 minutes away from their historic first meeting, as we're expecting it. Professor Suzuki, I'd like to just ask you um, one further question. Is there any fear in Japan that maybe... Things could get even worse for Tokyo if you get the Koreas coming closer and closer together. Uh, we know that there's a lot of uh, debate in this country about whether Japan was truly repentant on issues surrounding the Korean Peninsula in that uh, so-called comfort women deal of 2015. But there was no such deal like that done with North Korea. And that could be an opportunity for those critics in, in the South to to join North Korea and push for full repentance on the Korean Peninsula as a whole. Is that a worry at all in Japanese circles? Uh, yes, but I think that's a secondary worry. I think the primary worry is that the um, Korean Peninsula is entirely a nuclear-possessing peninsula. And that would mean that, uh, you know, the defense line between the North Korea or, let's say, the nuclear Korea uh, and Japan, there's no, uh, nothing in between. We only have the, uh, a sea in between these two. And I, I think the readiness for, uh, preparations for the, um, uh, protection of Japan has, the whole Japanese defense strategy will, will be changed in, uh, in a significant, uh, dimens- uh, degrees. So I, I think the, uh, the, Sort of a, a politically speaking, yes, the North-South reconciliation may have more political uh, weight for the claim on the uh, claim on the uh, uh, comfort women issue. But I think it's more directly reflected on the Japanese defense policy. Professor Suzuki, thank you. Thank you. Professor Kazuto Suzuki, Graduate School of Law at Hokkaido University, and we're still joined by Professor Patricia Getty of Sungunguan University School of Law. We touched on a couple of different human rights type issues there at your speciality, from uh, shared Korean interests in Japan, recognizing the abuses of the 20th century, but also, of course, Japan's own human rights concerns with North Korea. It's very complex, isn't it? trying to deal with all these over time whilst also talking about denuclearization. Yes, it it goes back to whether we should be linking the discussion of human rights with denuclearization. And I think this is something that uh, is unavoidable given the history of, uh, of the devastations of war and the accommodating rights abuses in the Asia region. So Delinking these two issues is is going to be uh, an issue for the civil society community today, because from what I heard last night, um, human rights will be left off the table in discussions between uh, President Trump and Kim Jong Un today. But one suspects that you know if President Trump was to push too hard on that front today, 
it could take us in a rather sinister direction. And and President Trump himself said this is a, a one-shot thing. He was talking, I think, as a warning to Kim Jong-un, but the same kind of applies for himself as well, at least for now. Exactly. Well, the worry is undermining the talks by bringing the discussion of human rights uh, immediately. And we're talking about a finite time today in which the two leaders are going to sit and talk. So the risk of sabotaging the talks is is not one I think that either, either party is interested in. Uh, however, it may be a missed opportunity because this is the, the most uh, open, the most, or I hope, the most open platform. We'll uh, look forward to keeping you here in the studio and talking more about some of those issues and plenty more besides. Stay with us for our summit special here at TBS EFM.